encounters with. Our scripture reading today is from John chapter 4 as we start that series. Um, And our reader, I think, is Judy, right? Yeah? Okay. Judy. Today's reading is John 4, 1 through 18. It can be found on page 980 of the Bible's next to your seats as well as on the screen. This is God's word. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. The word of the Lord. open with prayer as we look to hear God's message for us through John chapter 4. Let's pray. Our God of grace, we come into this um, room and um, our hearts may feel wounded or they may feel whole. They may feel in tatters or they may feel healthy. We might come with great doubts or we might come with a certainty that we haven't had in a while. We might come feeling like we belong and feeling like the words and the story that has been sung and said today is our story and we might come feeling like an outsider looking in or like wondering if we'll ever feel the way we felt about you that we used to 10 years ago. So in all these different places all of the different kinds of worlds that we've been living in, different kind of places that our hearts are, we sit here and we look for you to meet us, 
That's the hope. Is that even though we'll sit here and we don't want to admit how much of a mess we are, all of us are more broken than we care to admit. And that's the universal thing that ties us all together. And through this story, we're also tied together by something new. Not to be characterized in the long run by our mess, but by your love. We're more of a mess than we care to admit, but in Christ we, have, we are more loved and accepted than we ever imagined. And that, we hope, defines us in the end. May that definitive grace make its way into our hearts today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, the question of the week last week, let's see if I have the paper. I think I, yeah, I do. Um, the question of the week was, how do you gauge compatibility? And someone said, by Instagram followers, Twitter retweets, and swipe rights. Someone said, how able you are to enjoy the other and how willing you are to learn and grow together. Someone else said, when two or more sides are willing to work together. And someone said, as a single person, you only think of one kind of compatibility. It's just smiley face on there at the end. So, who do you, know, who do you, who do you listen to? Uh, or who do you, how do you gauge compatibility? And how much does it matter? Let me read a completely... Um, different take. So this is from someone who's described, has been described as a rock star philosopher, Alain de Baton. And his quote goes like this in an article he wrote called, Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. This is his quote. The good news is that it doesn't matter if we find we have married the wrong person. We mustn't abandon him or her. We only abandon the founding romantic idea upon which the Western understanding of marriage has been based for the last 20, 250 years. That a perfect being exists who can meet all our needs and satisfy our every yearning. This is like heretical, right? That he's saying this? We need to swap the romantic view for a tragic and at points comedic awareness that every human will frustrate anger, annoy, madden, and disappoint us. And we will, without any malice, do the same to them. Choosing whom to commit ourselves to is merely a case, you're going to love this, it's merely a case of identifying which particular variety of suffering we will most like to sacrifice ourselves for. Why does that Okay, number one, it makes you laugh, and I'm glad. I'm glad there's laughter. There's probably also a little bit of horror, like that is getting at something uh, deep, and that's getting at something that we hold dear and that we've been told over and over um, in our culture. Romance and the romantic myth, the romantic legend of our culture has taken on a life of its own. And it's begun to function in ways that feel kind of religious. At least that's what our author of the book, Seculosity, um, Paul Zoll, it's what he... Uh, not Paul, is it Paul? David. I get it mixed up because his dad uh, is named is Paul. So here's what he says. Let me just quote this. He, he kind of has a checklist where he's saying... 
Uh, here it is, right in front of me. He's saying, like, how do we know if this is, if romance and the romantic myth and the soulmate myth has reached the level of something that feels like a religion? He says, here's the checklist. Do we look at romantic love to tell us we're enough? Check. Do our relationships often house our primary guilt management systems? Check. Does romance provide a theoretical route to transcendence and salvation? Check. Check. And do we ritualize it into oblivion? Hey, now. And he's thinking about, just think about weddings you've been to and how it almost seems like every new decade there's a whole new set of the things that are now the the sort of faddish ways to ritualize the soulmate myth. So that's what he says. And so essentially what we're doing, and what this is where you need to get under the surface, I feel like, is we're beginning to elevate attaining the perfect spouse to the level of the ultimate, to ultimate satisfaction. Where a marital status, or lack thereof, can begin to become the treadmill of validation. Where this one issue becomes like the, the enoughness generator. And this is where we look. Another insight on this is just the impossibility of what we're expecting from one other person in life. Esther Perel is a renowned marriage therapist, and she characterized it this way. She says, we come to one person, and we basically are asking them to give us what once an entire village used to provide. Give me belonging, give me identity, give me continuity, and give me transcendence and mystery and and awe, all in one. Give me comfort, but give me edge. Give me novelty and give me familiarity. Give me predictability and give me surprise. Essentially, what it comes down to is saying, we're not just looking for a spouse. We're looking for a savior. And if you're single or if you're married or if you're divorced or if you're widowed, all of us are pulled by this as it seems like some mysterious force out there, the soulmate myth, is trying to pull you in and have you locate your completeness in Mr. or Mrs. Wright. And if you allow yourself to do that, and many of us do at many points, if you allow yourself to be swept off your feet by the romantic myth, then you can pretty much for sure expect to find over and over again to be hitting disorienting levels of discontentment in life. And so let's listen to what this ancient story of Jesus meeting a woman at the well has to say about all this. Jesus is at a well and it's in Samaria. He's sitting there and there's this Uh, He asks the woman who comes up for water. And so there's some shocking crossing over of cultural barriers. If you've been in church, uh, even if you've been in church six months, you've probably heard someone explain to you the Jews and the Samaritans and the conflict and the, you know, all this. And so basically you have Samaritans constantly being reminded by the neighboring peoples that that they are inferior and they are undeserving. And that they worship in all the wrong ways. And so they're, not even, they're, they're, they're undeserving of a relationship with me, if I'm the Jew. They're also undeserving of a relationship with God. 
And so Jesus is kind of just blowing through all of that. And that's the first fascinating thing about this story is that Jesus just seems to completely take all of, all of that away, just shove it to the side with his sort of breathtaking casualness in which he makes it seem like the most normal thing that he would be speaking with her and asking her for water. So that's the, the breathtaking beginning to the story, but then it, it gets even better because it moves beyond that boldness and that graciousness to, to getting into issues even, even deeper. And so you might ask yourself as you look at this passage, can we pinpoint, let's, let's do this, can we pinpoint the transformative issue or moment for this woman? Because something drastically changes from the beginning into the end for her. So if we look at verse 15 through 18, we get into it, where the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, Go, call your husband, and come back. I have no husband, she replied. She said, he said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you are now with is not your husband. With, uh, what you have just said is quite true. So on the one hand, we have just this statement about her. Jesus takes us into the realm of her relationships, romantic relationships, marriages, we might say dating in today's terms as well. But then something else we have to see about this. How does she describe, as the story goes on, how does she describe that Jesus knew that and saw that thing about five husbands and the one you're now with is not your husband. How does she describe it? If you look ahead to verses 28 and 29, we didn't read this part, it says this, Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And then in verse 39, again, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So let me tell you what I think is going on here. I think this woman shares our cultural obsession because she's admitting with the words coming out of her mouth that her everything has been these relationships that have maybe turned out in marriage, maybe divorce, maybe she's, maybe she's widowed as well, and now she's kind of like single and dating. All of that story of her and men and marriage, all of it, every part of it, from the singleness to the loss to the marriage, all of it, she's saying, is her, has been her everything. And that's how she's similar to us. And that's just what's coming out of her own mouth. It's her, it has been her everything. And so what does Jesus say about the thing that she's made her everything? Well, Jesus says in verse 13 and 14, he's cleverly laying out an, an analogy, a metaphor for her to grab hold of. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is talking about a living, life-giving water that is sort of, is something, so there's something Jesus has to offer. 
And he talks about if you knew the gift of God, that's the thing he said earlier, if you knew the gift of God and who's here, you'd ask for water. Jesus is getting at something that is permanent, that offers wholeness and satisfaction at a deeper level, completeness. Water that you don't have to keep going back. And so what's Jesus getting at? Jesus is getting at that this woman's unsatisfying well that she's had to go back to over and over again because it never actually deeply satisfies is all of the story of her five husbands. Her pursuit of Mr. Right has not quenched her thirst. Even though she's made it her everything. And so there's something else she still doesn't have. There's something else she still needs. And she gets that. And by the end, she seems to be really filled with joy. She's going and telling others she's a different person. She's filled with some kind of joy, some kind of peace, some kind of satisfaction, some kind of completeness. And guess what it's not? Guess what the transformation of this this romance-troubled woman has an experience and then finds joy. It was not that she went to Jesus and God, like many of us do, to fix the romance relationship problems. God, if you love me, you'll fix this. God, if you, you know, I don't know what, if you'll just show me this, I'll know you're real. God, this is the most important thing in my life. I need this. Can you provide what I need? You know what I long for. It's actually good to just point out that she has a dramatic, radical change as someone with a troubled romance life, and it has nothing to do with the romance area that she now is filled and has joy. What is it that she has? She has now Jesus. And I don't know if you view Jesus that way, but it's clearly how Jesus wants to be understood. Those who drink the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And we had to ask ourselves, do we look at Jesus that way? Do we truly believe in the, in the struggles and the desperate thirsts of our life? Do we believe that that's actually true? Do we pray in such a way that that's actually true? Do we approach God and Jesus as if that's actually true? And it's nothing new. Jesus isn't making a brand new analogy. He's tapping into something that was already there the Jews of his time, and even the Samaritans would be familiar with Isaiah 55. Come to me, all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters. And you who have no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Put that in terms of, that's something you, we could say to our culture about romance. Well, you know, that's what it's talking about. We could say to our us, to ourselves about romance. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. What is the water? In Isaiah 55, did anybody hear it? What is the water? What did you say? The word of God? Yeah. How, how else did you hear it in there? I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love. 
promise to David. God's covenant love is the water. And Jesus has that water. David, when he was in the desert, wilderness, experiencing actual real thirst, his thirst on a human level brought his mind to to think about the deeper thirst and the deeper satisfaction. And he put it into perspective with this prayer of Psalm 63, one of my favorites. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Jesus asked the woman, if you knew, he says to her, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew it, Psalm 63 is someone who knew the gift of God. Isaiah 55 is telling you about the gift of God. And this woman in the story finds out about the gift of God. Living water, like a water that nourishes eternally with only one drink. So God's love for us, God's covenant with us, is like that love. Do you know that one of the ways God allows himself to be portrayed, he intentionally does this in the Old Testament, he portrays himself, to bring out this analogy even further, he portrays himself as the perfect spouse. It's one of the pictures of of our relationship with God. In, In all of that, no matter how burly and tough of a man you are, you're a bride in this analogy. Sorry, it's just, you're a bride with a beautiful dress on in this analogy. And, and it's actually not flattering to us. The picture is very amazing of who God is. He's the, he's the most devoted, dedicated spouse ever. And he portrays himself this way in the Old Testament. But who, who is he married to? Oh, my goodness. You know, if you put yourself into that analogy, it's, it's always in the Old Testament, it's this sort of promiscuous, unfaithful spouse that nonetheless, God's devotion outlasts it. He even has... A prophet named Hosea marry uh, someone named Gomer. And the real punishment is not that he had to marry someone named Gomer. <laughs> the, 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 the real you know, punchline on it is Gomer's a prostitute. And so it's a guarantee. And, and what God does in the Old Testament is he paints pictures of the gospel. He paints pictures of what he says to the woman is the gift of God. And the picture of the gift of God is that that's what He's, that's the lengths he's willing to go to in his relationship with us. And so Hosea gets to paint that picture. Hosea gets to preach the gospel to the world around him through, this, through marrying someone who's going to be unfaithful to him. Lucky him. God's love for you endures all your promiscuity towards him. Amen. And despite your promiscuity towards him, he pays the heavy cost to secure you as his bride. When I was young, 21 years ago, I didn't have hardly any money, but I decided to buy a ring. And I'm married now for 20 years. And I didn't have enough money for that ring. It was only $1,000, which in the scale of rings, I think that's pretty cheap, right? 
$1,000. I didn't have it, so I had to put it on a payment plan. So I made payments to the ring. And in a way, that those payments were big on my, they were a big draw and a big cost on my pocketbook and my bank account and my, you know, sense of security. But I delighted in making those payments. I knew where those payments were going. I knew where those payments were securing. I knew the future together with my now wife of 20 years, Lisa. I knew where that was all leading. So even though it was costly, there was a delight to making those payments. That's how God feels about you. That's how God feels about Jesus going to the cross and suffering. He suffered loneliness, abandonment, being displayed before the world as unattractive and being rejected by almost everyone. We might feel in our relationship issues, in our relationship troubles, like no one understands the loneliness, no one understands the abandonment, the rejection, the loss, the way I feel unattractive. Jesus does. Jesus took it all on. That was part of the cost to win you as his bride. And that's what the Samaritan woman learns. That from here on out, somehow he, Jesus cracked that open for her in a way that she got it. She then understood the gift of God so that she knew she never has to deal at an essential level anymore with being rejected, being left, being divorced, being abused by their, her spouse. Jesus has secured me permanently, and that's deeper than all of those issues. No wonder she goes back to town to tell everyone. And so we live in a world now where we've been told that a spouse exists to complete you and that your wedding is your day of... um, It's like a permission slip for self-absorption all day and to create every last detail for yourself. And we live in a world where marriage and divorce are both kind of seen through this lens of I need to find completeness. And so minimal sacrifice, maximum gain. Marriage is seen through it, but even our divorces are viewed through this lens of what we need to be complete and whole and to have what we feel entitled to. And we are invited amidst all of that junk, we're invited along with the Samaritan woman to be drawn into and to take part in an alternate community. An alternate community where we reflect the gospel through our singleness and through our marriages through our singleness as divorced people, as widowed people, uh, single because you just haven't found the person yet, and through our marriages, happily married, unhappily married, or somewhere in between. All of us have a chance to... This is how uh, Peter Scazzaro, in one of his books he writes, he's a pastor, he writes about emotionally healthy church, emotionally, emotionally healthy spirituality, and he has a piece when he talks to leaders about your primary gospel message should be through your singleness or your marriage. That is, people who are reading that, that is blowing people's minds because that, nobody's ever heard that. Nobody's ever said it that way before. And so he highlights the story in his book. He highlights Emily's story 
He says, Emily is a parachurch missionary, has worked with university students, and trained other workers for the last 30 years. When I asked her to tell me about intentionality as a dedicated celibate, this was her response. Intentionality. That is a tough word. I didn't want to be single. This was the hand that was dealt to me. My question was, where do I go with this? I didn't want to sit around waiting. I wanted to get on with my life. My 30s were tough because I was attending a lot of weddings and wondering what was wrong with me that I was still single. But things changed in my 40s. On my 40th birthday, I got out my journal and wrote, what is good about this? When I wrote down the names, then I wrote down the names of the people I'd invested in because I'm single and available. I had a list of 300 people. My 40s were a wonderful time for me. I was making a real difference in people's lives. This got me through some of the hard times. By the age of 52, I still long for a partner, a companion in older age, someone to be there. I tried to remain indifferent, like Ignatius talks about, holding my desires and longings for marriage with my palms open, not with my hands tightly clenched. Finally, I said, God, I'm not going to pray about it anymore. You know what is on my heart. I am done praying about it. From here on, whatever you decide to give me, singleness or marriage, I will receive it as a gift from you. What I really want is you. All I have is you. Afterward, I cried tears of true contentment and relinquishment. That's when I realized, in a deeper way, that my longing for marriage was the outward expression of my inward longing for the Lord. That was a very significant moment for me. God had brought me to a moment of absolute indifference. It truly did not matter to me if I married or not. I don't know what you hear in Emily's words, and God will use those words how they need to be used for you. I hear someone who has, you know, she's saying 52 years old was that final aha. You know, I've got 10 more years to go. This is a long journey. But what I hear in that is someone who found the living water. And that living water is another way to talk about it. We talk about it as the gospel. And the gospel is the true stabilizer in your life. Our, everything that we're worried about on the surface every day, including romance, singleness, marriage, status, everything, everything threatens to destabilize you. What this woman, Emily, and what the woman in John chapter 4 lays out before you is the idea that if you have the gospel, if you have the living water, the, the days of the destabilization of these smaller things in your life, these days are numbered. You are experiencing the fullness of God through Jesus. Let's pray that we have that. Dear God, in the absence of perfect words from City Life's preacher, may we hear today your voice. May we hear what we need to hear, whether we are unhappily married and struggling, whether we've are unhappily single and struggling with that, or whether we are divorced, widowed, 
single, not by our choice, and would love to enter into a phase of partnership and family, wherever we hear this message, would we also hear your voice unmistakably calling us home, unmistakably telling us that we are essentially more important than anything else, we are your bride, and you have paid the price to secure us permanently. Amen.